This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually. My name is Adam Conover, and if you listen to the way we talk about our political parties, it often sounds like they're elementally opposing philosophies locked in an internal struggle, right? Republicans and Democrats seem to us like fire and water, angels and demons, ground beef and a tofu sandwich. But the surprising truth is it hasn't always been that way. From the period right after World War II into the 1970s, American government actually had a sustained period of bipartisan cooperation. Republicans and Democrats genuinely worked together to do big things like pass the law that created our national highway system. And even more surprising to us today, the parties weren't ideologically sorted in the way they are now. There were such things as liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. I know, I know. It sounds like I just said there was one such a thing as a round square or a good piece of pizza in Los Angeles. But it's true. Both ideologies were represented in both parties. Under such conditions, it was actually kind of hard to figure out what each party even stood for. In fact, the party's positions got so fuzzy that in 1950, some political scientists pushed to reform the parties to make them more ideologically coherent so voters would have a better idea of what they were getting from their elected officials and could better hold them accountable. The political scientists literally wanted the parties to be more polarized. But the reason that the two parties back then seemed like such a mismatched dollar store bin full of different ways of thinking is that each one was actually a coalition of different groups. And these coalitions seem really weird to us today. Republicans had strongholds in the Northeast and were the party for big money business interests and for the middle class. In fact, the southern states voted Democratic so consistently they were referred to as the Solid South, and it was actually a block of conservative southern Democrats who were primarily responsible for blocking progress on civil rights for decades. And I mean, think about it. A northern labor activist didn't actually have that much in common with a white supremacy-loving southern senator. They just ended up in the same party through a quirk of historical fate. And there was one big problem. This era of bipartisan compromise only existed because all the politicians within it consented to something awful. The system of racist anti-democratic apartheid known as Jim Crow. And while many Americans desperately wanted an end to Jim Crow, I mean, after all, it was disenfranchising and killing them, they didn't have a voice in our political system. So bipartisan compromise survived only because the fight that really mattered was never allowed to happen. 
But when the massive civil rights reforms of the 1960s finally happened, that buried fault line was exposed and the consensus fell apart. In 1964 and 1968, the Solid South dissolved and the Democrats lost large parts of the South in presidential elections because they had supported civil rights. Nixon saw that the Republican base was moving south and so he waged a campaign that played on racial resentment and fears of government overreach. And guess what? It worked. Conservative Southerners fled the Democratic Party for the Republican Party and Democratic strength in the South permanently waned. Over time, the South turned predictably red and the Northeast flipped blue. The party of Lincoln became the party that represented white Southerners and African-Americans who'd been shifting the Democrats since the New Deal made a decisive turn blue. And in the years after, the parties continued to sort themselves, becoming more ideologically polarized, a trend that has continued in the decades since, need I say as much. And since that polarization has resulted in less bipartisan compromise, that means that Congress is less able to get things done. And it's not just the politicians. We, the public, have become increasingly partisan ourselves, with our voting patterns becoming more and more polarized and Americans reporting that they are increasingly disgusted or frightened of the opposing party. So if you think that's a distressing state of affairs, you might take solace in the fact that the parties have changed throughout history and by recognizing that despite how they may appear, they are not ideological opposites locked in an eternal struggle. They're people organized in a specific social structure that determines the shape of our political life. And if we understand that structure, it can shed light on why our current era is so partisan and conflicted. And here today to talk about the structure of America's political parties, we have David Hopkins. He's a political science professor at Boston College, and along with his co-author, Matt Grossman, he's the author of the book Asymmetric Politics, Ideological Republicans and Group Interest Democrats. His work is fascinating. I think you're going to love this interview, so let's get straight to it. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Adam. So when we're talking about the political parties in America, the parties, the members of each party so often have like a specific vision of who the other party is. You know, they they we have these ideas about Democrats think certain ways about Republicans. Republicans think certain ways about Democrats. Your work really investigates how the parties are actually structured, who actually makes them up, what they actually believe, how they operate. And that's so much at odds with our sort of day-to-day understanding of who our side is and who the other side is to the extent that, you know, people listening are on one side or the other. So what are the biggest misconceptions that you think the, the public has about what these organizations actually are? Yeah, you know, the the sort of central argument that we make in the book Asymmetric Politics is that the two parties really are just different animals. And they're really the best way to understand the Democratic Party is that it's a coalition of social groups, whereas the best way to understand the Republican Party is that it's um, the agent of an ideological movement, the conservative movement. And what happens a lot of times is that Um, people on one side develop um, 
a sort of uh, a picture not only of their own party, but of the other party as being the mirror image of their own party. So Democrats mm. who might see their the Democratic Party as the sort of social group coalition that speaks for historically underprivileged groups, then sort of conclude that the Republican Party is just the mirror opposite. And so they're a party that speaks for privileged groups. Mm. And um, then on the other side, Republicans who see their own party as standing up for um, for limited government, for individual liberty, for uh, traditional values, for the Constitution, and for American nationalism, then conclude that the Democrats must be against all of those things. Mm. Um, and so part of the sort of misconceptions of the opponents that that arise out of the asymmetry of the parties, feed the rancor that we see so much of in politics today because there's so much misunderstanding. N neither side is respecting the good faith disagreement of the other. They're sort of assuming that the other side exists just to oppose them or just to be the opposite of everything they hold dear. And I, I yeah, I, I think that's that's a part, big part of the story of politics today. Yeah, you hear that in the language the parties use. If you watch, you know, the sort of Tucker Carlson types, they'll say, oh, the, the ideological left has a mission to X, Y, Z, which is not how the left would, or at least, you know, not how the Democratic Party mainstream would describe themselves. They don't say we on the ideological left have a mission to do this. They they sort of use the language. I see, I, I sort of understand the, the your thesis here because uh, the the Democratic Party more talks about those individual groups whose, uh, uh, whose interests they're trying to serve. And by contrast, yeah, the Democrats say, oh, the Republicans, that's the party of rich people and the party of white people and they're trying to protect the interests of, of rich whites, essentially. And and your thesis is that both of those visions are incorrect. That's right. And that it's very easy to sort of um, ascribe these um, sinister motivations to the other side and, and dismiss what the other side is saying about what they believe is simply sort of window dressing for their real agenda, their uh, real dastardly agenda. Yeah. Um, and we're sort of against that on both sides. We actually think both parties do a better job of understanding themselves than understanding the other side. Um, and so we should uh, we should have some respect for how each side talks about it itself uh, more than we should have respect for what they say about about the other side. Well, so let's break down those two, you know, if it's asymmetrical and we're really talking about two modes of operation, let's talk about each one of them. So uh, how do you describe the the way the Republican Party is organized? And, and I'm especially curious in your book, how did you go about doing this research? How did how do you see, you know, what's your evidence for uh, your conclusion here? Sure. So the Republicans, as we say, are basically um, an ideological movement, or the party is sort of structured as the agent of an ideological movement, the modern conservative movement, which is, um, and now at this point in maybe you could say it's sixth or seventh decade of existence, it really arose after World War II as um, an opposition to kind of New Deal era uh, liberal politics, mm -hmm. democratic politics, and fairly quickly succeeded in becoming dominant within Republican Party organizations. And certainly by the 80s and 90s in the Reagan and Gingrich eras, we really get to a point where Republican Party exists more or less to advance conservatism. That's sort of the general united principle behind the party. And if you want to look at the evidence, um, 
virtually every major Republican uh, leader, elected official, candidate after about the 1960s or 70s identifies as a conservative, specifically identifies as someone who believes in the conservative movement, who is in politics in order to advance conservative principles. Um, We also see at the mass level that the majority, strong majority of Republican members in the mass public identify personally as ideological conservatives and Mm. view, and again, view the party, view the Republican Party as existing to stand for these ideological uh, principles. And so the evidence that we present in the book is this large array of um, data from public opinion surveys to look at at uh, at what voters believe and 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 uh, the preferences they have and the identifications they have, we also look at the rhetoric of political leaders um, and what they say and do when they're in government. We look at the way that candidates run in campaigns. We look at the way that um, affiliated institutions that aren't explicitly officially part of the party, but sort of are for all intents and purposes part of the party, like, for example, the conservative media universe. Um, We Mm -hmm. look at how they behave and how they interact with politicians and and voters and other party actors. So the book is really a a combination of drawing on a lot of different sources, using a lot of different kind of analyses to bolster this sort of main argument that we're making. And where did this movement come from? I mean, I I understand, you know, I know about Barry Goldwater and and Ronald Reagan, and and I know about it as a through line and something that's grown, but what is the, is there a particular source of it? Is there a, is there a big bang moment or how do you describe it? Most of the historical, um, uh, you know, scholarship about the modern conservative movement really looks at its roots in um, conservative publications like National Review, mm-hmm. um, con- which was founded in the mid 1950s by William F. Buckley Jr., obviously a, a very major figure um, in in the creation of the modern conservative movement. Um, groups like the John Birch Society um, and the Young Americans for Freedom and these other activist groups that um, arose and became um, very active around that time. And really um, very quickly became very involved in the Republican Party at the organizational level. Um, And then um, also, you know, there's uh, just sort of a a longer uh, tradition of conservatism, ideological conservatism, small government conservatism in American culture that really goes all the way back, you know, in American history, that had sort of temporarily been in something of an eclipse in the 1930s and the 40s. You know, the the Great Depression and the New Deal and the World World War II sort of scrambled American politics in various ways. And, And one of the the ways it did was that temporarily a lot of Republicans thought, well, we have to sort of move more towards the the, the middle to win. And so there, there was a moment where a lot of Republican politicians were kind of distancing themselves from conservatism and um, supporting at least aspects of the New Deal and the sort of enlarged modern state um, during that time. And so these new generation of conservative activists in the 1950s and 60s really themselves thought that they were pulling the Republican Party and American politics back to its true roots. Um, and, and so they saw a, a continuum that had been temporarily disrupted and they wanted to sort of repair it. So it's this sort of coalescing of ideas, like it's a movement from many different sources, uh, but you know these thoughts are sort of bubbling up and, and becoming firmer and firmer and, and expressing themselves in the party – 
What was like the last gas? I'm trying to think back. What was the last gasp of the sort of non-conservative Republicanism? Is there, uh, you know, who's the most recent uh, example of that older strain from the party? Well, when we still, you know, when we look at people like Nixon and Ford, they're sort of interesting figures because in some ways they did identify as conservatives and had ties to the conservative movement to a degree, but they also sort of felt like if they got too far to the right, um, they would not be able to win elections, they wouldn't be able to govern. And so there was also some distance uh, as well. So they're kind of this sort of the last generation prior to Reagan. Um, you know, Reagan, of course, runs against Ford in the 1976 Republican primaries right. and comes fairly close to beating him. Um, but then, of course, Ford loses the general election and Reagan comes back and wins in 1980. And not only does he win the nomination fairly easily, but then he wins the general election. And one of the last remaining arguments against the conservative movement taking over the party by the the dwindling faction of of moderate and liberal Republicans was conservatism can't win. You know, th- th- this was the mm. lesson they took from Goldwater. Conservatism can't win. The countries just won't support it. And once Reagan wins and wins again and becomes very popular and, you know, wins in a landslide in, in his reelection campaign, that argument is out the door. And then there's really no ground for, for anyone else to sort of stand on in the party to try to make the argument that this conservative takeover should be resisted. Right. And, and now, that is the dominant force in the party. I mean, going going back to the even the Tea Party in in two thousand eight, that was an example of the, the that sort of conservative movement in the Repo- Republican Party insisting, saying, "No, no, no, you must cleave to the principles of this movement. That's the most important thing." Is that a correct analysis? That's right. I mean, what's sort of happened uh, since then, and repeatedly over and over again, has been that when the Republicans fail, when they lose an election or when they don't get their uh, policy agenda through or they don't, uh, you know, they, they don't satisfy the activists within the party, there's this sort of recurrent energy for a kind of ideological cleansing within the party. The, the, the reason for failure is almost always that the, the, the leaders of the party have drifted from conservative principles. And if they, uh, if, if they are, are able to return to conservative principles, then the party will be, will be uh, successful once again. So the Tea Party was obviously a, 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 an excellent recent example of that dynamic, but that's a dynamic that has sort of repeated itself. We saw it in the 90s, we saw it in the 80s, we saw it in the 70s. Um, this sort of um, continued suspicion on the part of the grassroots right that the institutional Republican Party and the politicians, especially in Washington, the federal politicians, they sort of, they, they say they're going to shrink government, they say they're going to lead this conservative revolution, we send them to Washington and it doesn't happen. Right. You know, something happens to them there. They get corrupted. They lose touch with their roots, something. And so we have to go find someone to get them. We need to, to support <laughs> primary uh, uh, challengers. We need uh, outsider candidates. We need some other force, conservative media personalities, some other force to sort of impose and, in, and enforce uh, this ideological purity on on the party. Um, and that's a dynamic that, you know, we, we've we just sort of seen over and over again in the, in the last few decades. Yeah, that's the Republicans kicking Eric Cantor out of uh, out of the House of Representatives. He's a highly placed conservative leader, not conservative enough, and they, and they boot him via the primary process. They boot 
Eric Cantor in a primary, they boot John Boehner. You know, John yeah. Boehner, one of the most successful speakers of the House, just in terms of how many seats he wins. Um, uh, in many ways, a very able uh, speaker of the House. But during his speakership, finds this constant uh, opposition from from backbench conservatives, and that ultimately sort of swallows him up after a few years. But so your argument is, you know, something you hear from liberals a lot is, well, the Republicans are the party of the rich. You got the Koch brothers. They're paying, you know, they're paying off everybody in order to advance their own interests. All the Republican, you know, rank and file are being hoodwinked by these rich folks. And that's what's going on. You would argue that that's not the case and that actually, no, this is a real belief that members of the Republican Party really believe this stuff. It really is a movement. Um, And uh, that's something that needs to be taken seriously. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, sometimes uh, uh, liberals especially are, um, they're sometimes liable to sort of believe that that everybody deep down really sees things the way they do. And if they say they don't, it's just because someone's buying them off or something like that. And uh, (laughs) we we don't, we don't believe that. Um, We think that, um, you know, there's a a long history of um, a lot of work, not just money being put into politics, but grassroots activism on the right um, that is a big part of the uh, the success of the conservative movement and, and the success of it, especially in taking over the Republican Party, um, that goes all the way back to the, the early days. And to discount that as simply uh, something that's artificially ginned up by corporate interests or something like that, I think is to, is to miss the reality. Okay, well, let's turn to the Democrats. So again, the sort of classic, you know, Fox News version of of uh, the left is that oh it's the ideological left and and they have a campaign just like you know we on the right do they're on a mission to do X Y Z and again you'd argue that's that's not the case the Democratic Party is actually organized very differently. That's right. I mean, a lot of the Democratic Party isn't really left at all. Um, we'll start simply with um, identification. When we ask people, do you identify yourself as a liberal, a moderate, or conservative, only about half the Democratic Party at the mass level identifies themselves as liberals. Huh. Um, and so you have a, a huge moderate, um, uh, and you used to have a significant conservative block of Democrats. You don't have so many of those anymore, but you certainly have plenty <laughs> of moderates left. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, think I've met a conservative Democrat uh, very recently. Yeah, yeah. So the old Southern style Democrats um, were were actually conservative Democrats. They're they're pretty much an endangered species, but we still have plenty of moderates around. I mean, you do see it sometimes in uh, you know the governor of Louisiana, for instance, has a very strong pro life stance. Uh, and uh, as we're recording this, that's that's in the news right now. Um, and you do see that occasionally in uh, Virginia places like that. But yeah, it's a little bit more of a of a dying breed uh, to have that that conservative Democratic strain. It is a dying breed, but the the moderates are still there's still plenty of them around, um, mm-hmm. and not just politicians, but voters too. Moderate Democratic voters, um, and when you we ask people. Why are you a Democrat? Why do you belong to the Democratic Party? Why do you like the Democratic Party? Not very many people say because I'm a liberal and the Democrats are the party of the left. It's much more common for them to to cite um, a group identity or group sympathy to explain why they belong to the Democratic hmm. Party. They see the Democrats as the party of the middle class. They see the Democratic Party as the party of, of African-Americans or Latinos. They see the party as the party of feminists or the party of um, gays and lesbians or the party of, uh, you know, just 
sort of people like them, group social groups like them, um, um, Jews and other re- religious minorities, certainly. Um, and that's really the essence of the Democratic Party. There are certainly liberals in the party and there are liberal ideas in the party, but they don't dominate the party to nearly extent that conservatism and conservative ideas dominate the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is just organized in a very different way, all the way up and down uh, from, from politicians through through activists down to the, the, the regular voters. And it really is this idea of group interest and group identity that is um, most often central to uh, defining what the Democratic Party is and defining what it means to be a Democrat for so many of the people who Hmm. are active in the party. That's fascinating because you hear so often from both Republicans and Democrats, you hear criticisms of the phrase identity politics. That's something that a lot of, you know, people like to throw shade at that identity politics isn't uh, a good way to do politics and and we should avoid it and we should, you know, do X, Y, Z instead. But your argument would be that is the soul of what the Democratic Party is, unless I'm understanding, unless I'm misunderstanding you. No, I think that's right. Now, I mean, when we talk about identity politics today, usually that means race, gender, sexual orientation, maybe religion. Not so much class, though, Mm. Um, not so much some of the other things. So when people say identity politics in terms of the way that term gets thrown around, they're often meaning something a bit more specific. They're talking about specific kinds of identities. Um, What we would say is, yes, identity is very important. Social group membership is very important. But there are different kinds of social group membership. And historically, the view that the Democrats stand up for the working class, they stand up for unions. Unions, they stand up for regular people, um, has been very important to the mass appeal of the Democratic Party. Um, and that's not a form of identity that gets as much attention in our current kind of media and social media uh, discourse, but it's one that historically is very, very important to understanding where the Democratic support comes from in the electorate. So now, why do you think that that divergence happened between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party? I mean, we can look back at the Republicans and say, okay, well, the conservative movement arose and took, you know, uh, took wing in the the Republican Party. Is it simply that no comparable (laughs) movement arose in the Democratic Party? Or was it, you know, the result of a specific historical force that caused it to become a coalition of different groups in that way? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. We've thought a lot about that. Um, I think I think one one of the answers to that is exactly what you say, that it's just sort of a historical story. Um, you know, each of these parties is its own separate institution that evolves the way institutions do, that creates its own culture. And so we shouldn't necessarily expect that each of the parties has a, a correspondingly identical history, um, and they've each sort of gone in their own direction. Certainly, um, there have been a lot of people who have put a lot of thought into the question of why we never really had a viable socialist movement in the United States, which is something that really distinguishes the U.S. from a lot of other countries around the world that are otherwise comparable. Yeah. And uh, why we never really got that strong left-wing ideological mass movement um, the way that most of Western Europe did um, in the first half of the 20th century. Um, And so there are various historical contingencies that that can, I think, account for that. But there's another reason that I think is very central to our argument, really very central to understanding American politics, which is um, the way that public opinion uh, looks in this country. Um, If you ask uh, Americans about where they stand on 
um, a lot of specific policy issues, social security, um, health care, the environment, education, whatever. And you sort of add up where they where they wind up. You end up with a picture where most Americans are on the left side of the cent- of center. Um, they're more liberal than conservative. Okay. But so they want you, they want those programs. They want uh, they want those programs. They want policies that are what we would sort of think of as standard democratic or standard liberal policies. Um, more more spending, more regulation for for domestic yeah. um, you know programs and that you, sort of thing. And you hear politicians say that uh, people want single payer health care. They want uh, clean air. They're you know the the voters are in favor of our agenda is an argument that Democrats often exactly make. right. And they have reason to say that. They can point to public opinion surveys that show that the popularity of the Democratic positions on all these specific issues is well above 50 percent. And that's absolutely valid. But what's also valid and is also just as longstanding has been when you ask people broader questions about their values and principles, when you ask them about, um, you know, uh, uh, do they believe government should be bigger or smaller? Do they believe that individual liberty is more important than, um, you know, than government action? If you ask them about, uh, should we preserve traditional values or should we be open to major social change? And even if you just ask them, are you on the left or on the right? Well, in those broad, you know, strokes, you get a different picture. You get an American electorate that's mostly on the right side of center. Mm. And so what this means is that each party just has its own incentive to be a different kind of party. It's to the Democrats' advantage to talk about policy specifics, to emphasize practicalities, the groups that that benefit from the various Democratic um, you know, initiatives that they propose, and to make elections turn on, well, do you agree with us on policy or do agree with the Republicans on policy. Republicans have an equally powerful incentive to have a very different conversation, to fight on very different turf, to talk much more broadly and generally about whose values do you share? Do you want things to go in the left or the right? Are you for traditionalism or are you for progressivism? Are you for big government or small government? And so that just reinforces, you know, it's sort of like a market system. Um, The demands of the electorate reinforce the specific practical, uh, interest-based policy nature of the Democrats and the broad, symbolic, ideological principle and value characteristics of the Republicans. Each side is simply giving the voters what they want. That's really fascinating to me because sometimes it seems as though when I'm looking at, you know, the uh, competition between the two parties, sometimes it seems that the Republicans sort of campaign from the heart and the Democrats campaign from the head, that uh, a lot of Republican positions are, you know, if if you just look at, you know, Trump versus Hillary in 2016, you know, Hillary would say, well, we should have, you know, here's my long description of my policy program to, uh, deal with this problem or that problem. And Trump very much argued from just, you know, it, it's it's uh, much more emotional and much more based in uh, what the basic value is that he's sort of trying to espouse. And this, you know, the same is true of, of uh, you know, Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren, right? If you look at the way that they campaigned in their various elections. And so you're saying that that's almost, that is even influencing the structure of the party, that dichotomy in a way. 
That's right, because it's it's uh, it's affecting who gets attracted to each party. On what grounds are they attracted? What are the demands they are making of their uh, of their leaders within the party, and how do they how do you best satisfy their demands? And of course, it's simultaneously, um, of course, the parties are battling over the swing vote, and they're trying to, um, you know, uh, each appeal to these voters who are simultaneously left leaning on specifics and right leaning on generalities, and they're trying to, you know. Um, uh, get them to to see politics in their in their terms and not the other party's terms during an election. So there's really a lot of factors that reinforce the the distinct nature of each party um, that mean that you know that th- they have been preserved for decades and decades. You know we've seen the same pattern over and over again. Yeah, the fascinating thing about your analysis is it really explains a lot. <laughs> like like you're describing this, and I'm like, oh yeah, that that adds up for why why that election went that way. Or, or why that debate sounds that way, or or why one of these parties is winning in one area and losing in another. So just getting back to the Democrats, how does this sort of loose coalition structure affect what it means to be a Democrat? How the Democratic Party functions? What are the things they have? I mean, they're not they're not going out and primarying people the like the way the Republicans are. They they must have a different way of doing business. And what are the ways that that you know helps them and hurts them? Yeah, well, you know, in the past, the group coalition nature of the Democratic Party caused a lot of internal problems. I mean, there's a sort of old kind of folk wisdom about the Democrats. Um, you know, Will Rogers famously said, I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> right. um, and that was, um, there was a lot of truth to that because a lot of the various group elements of the Democratic coalition didn't necessarily see the eye to eye on policy, or they were always sort of battling for control of the party. Mm. I mean, we're talking about a party that for uh, several decades in the mid 20th century had both white Southern segregationists and African Americans as base voters in the party. That's right. going to cause some problems. Bizarre. So um, there certainly were, were periods in history where the Democrats were fighting each other and they were um, primarying each other and they were um, had, had quite famous um, internal friction. What's sort of happened over time is as the coalition has evolved, the current coalition gets along with each other a bit better. Um, There aren't as many obvious um, contradictions in the interests or or policy preferences of the, the elements of the coalition as there used to be. Some of that is because those elements have themselves changed. For example, labor unions used to be uh, quite anti-immigration mm. um, and uh, and quite anti-environment. Um, mm. You know, because they believed their members were uh, were were their members' interests were not furthered by right, more they're... cheap labor coming in over the border or uh, or shutting down you know uh, uh, plants and factories. Yeah, um, I mean that's for, what the for... that's who the unions representing is the people working in the plants and factories. Exactly, um, and you know. Labor today, of course, labor has changed. It's both weaker and it's more dominated by public employees unions as opposed to the old manufacturing unions. But it gets along a lot better with the environmentalists and they know <laughs> it's not anti-immigration anymore. So so there has been some change. There's nothing inevitable about the Democrats being more placid than the Republicans. It used to be, as I say, that the, the sort of conventional wisdom was the reverse, um, that it was the Republicans that were unified and, and respectful and harmonious. And it was the Democrats that were always fighting each other. So it just happened 
happens to be that the moment we're in now is a moment where the Democratic coalition um, is more is more harmonious. It's also a bit smaller than it used to be. That's part of the trade-off, you know, mm. uh, losing the conservative white South, uh, losing some of the working class vote has helped the internal unity of the party, but it's also made it a little harder for it to win elections. Well, and that's one of the challenges facing the party. I mean, again, going back to uh, as we record this, the uh, governor of Louisiana is set to sign a very stringent anti-abortion bill. And that's a debate that is you know constantly happening within the de- Democratic Party. Should the party kick pro-life Democrats out? Uh, should, should, you know, should this be, does it make sense to have this as part of the coalition? And that's a very, strikes me as a very hard question to answer. And I don't know, I, I almost want to push back on the idea that uh, the, the Democrats are more harmonious. I mean, you're the, you're the researcher, so you, <laughs> you, you probably have the evidence to back yourself up. But, uh, you know, while there was certainly a ton of fighting, you know, to take 2016, for example, a ton of rancor on the left, uh, sorry, on the right, you know, T- Ted Cruz versus uh, Donald Trump and all that, um, it seemed that it sort of got resolved, right? <laughs> that after Trump won, it was like, okay, he's the standard bearer of conservatism. He got sort of subsumed under that banner. But the, uh, you know, the Bernie Hillary division never went away. It's still there. And you see it bubbling up again uh, in the current pr- crop of candidates, perhaps even in an even more fragmented way. You see people, uh, it's, it's gotten very rancorous very early. Well, um, losing an election that everyone thinks you're going to win um, does have a tendency to, to get people's, um, you know, uh, get people upset. True, um, that'll fuck and, you up. And um, one of the reasons why we are seeing that is just because of the way 2016 turned out. Mm. I mean, um, imagine if it had gone the other way, um, the kind of fight there might have been in the Republican Party about Trump having been nominated. And yeah. Did, did that blow the election and now Hillary's president and, you know, whose fault is that? Fair so point. I think some of that is simply uh, is simply a, 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 a type of party politics that does apply equally to both sides, which is that people <laughs> okay. get in a bad mood when they lose. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that the divisions we see now, uh, obviously, different people will have different favorite uh, presidential candidates uh, when you have uh, certainly when you have 20 odd people running, there will be some uh, tension and some disagreement. But um, I actually don't think there's unusual rancor. When you look again um, outside of, say, the social media world and look in the mass public, um, there are an awful lot of voters that are perfectly uh, Democratic primary voters that are perfectly happy with lots of different Democrats running. Sure. There are plenty of people who have Joe Biden as their first choice and Bernie Sanders as their second choice True. or vice versa, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if you sort of view these um, as ideological battles. But again, part of our point in the book is that that's not how a lot of Democrats view politics at all. And um, even the the Bernie versus Hillary um, uh, 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 race in 2016, which was widely, um, I think, interpreted as this ideological battle for the soul of the party, if you actually look at what differentiated Bernie and Hillary voters out in the country, it really wasn't ideology nearly so much as age, um, <laughs> race, gender, and uh, whether you were a Democrat or whether you were an independent. Those mm. were the big things that sort of distinguished the Bernie side from the Hillary side. The uh, ideological differences were much lower uh, in 2016 in the Democratic side than, than a lot of people in the press kind of uh, assumed they were. And again, that speaks to our point that a lot of Democrats just don't think 
ideologically, and they don't view the party as existing to uh, advance a particular ideological uh, position. And Sanders, of course, is a bit of an exception to that. He is someone who very strongly identifies with an ideological position. He's also someone who historically is not run as a Democrat. Yeah. And we think that's uh, those are two things that are also somewhat related. Well, before we move off of, my, off of the Democrats, that, that's my last question on that topic, because I, I think when Sanders arose as a presidential candidate, uh, one of the things that gave him a lot of energy was that he was seen as the candidate of the ideological left. You know, within the Democratic Party, there certainly is a a subset of folks who would call themselves the ideological left, who who affiliate right. with socialism or with uh, you know various isms uh, that that can be found on the left. Uh, and I'm very curious. You sort of alluded to this earlier. Is there any theory that you have or that you've heard expressed for why the ideological left historically has had so much less success than the ideological right. I mean, yeah, why is that? Yeah, I mean, it really is a a great question. I think some of it is simply that the way the left and leftist, however you want to describe it, activism in this country has has traditionally been pursued. Um, And I think there are a couple of ways in which it's different from the way that conservative or right-wing activism has been pursued. Uh, The first difference has been that... um, there's been much less broad ideological activism and much more issue and group specific activism on the left. So when you think about, you know, say the 60s, all right, um, which is certainly a, a time in history where we say, well, there was an awful lot of left wing activism. There was, but it was sort of divided into pieces. There was the anti-war movement. There was the women's rights movement. There was the civil rights movement. There was the environmental movement. There was the gay rights movement. Um, There was the disability rights movement. Um, And each of those movements, you know, had its own set of organizations, had its own set of activism, had its own um, set of of, uh, policy objectives and its own approach to, to pursuing them. And uh, you don't have nearly as much of the institutional, broad, uh, left-wing organizations or interest groups or movements created during that Mm. time. Whereas on the right, it was much more that people built... Um, ideological organizations that that took conservative positions and emphasized conservative goals on, you know, issues from A to Z. Um, and so that's one difference. And so, of course, that reinforces the kind of group nature of the of the Democratic Party and, and the left of center politics in this country more so, broadly has been those those divisions. They they sort of live on in our interest group universe um, on the left. Uh, you know, if you're a Democrat, you you know, you want you go and you speak to the NAACP, then you talk to the National Organization for Women, right. then you talk to the AFL-CIO, you know, as Republicans, <laughs> you, you can talk, you can go to CPAC um, and, and get all in one shopping. Um, um, it's it's just it's just different. I see what you but, mean. It, it, it's sort of, for instance, to take one of the big liberal or or maybe you'd even classify as left wing victories of the last decade would be the uh, the campaign for uh, gay civil rights for for gay marriage for same sex marriage, and uh, but that was pursued. That's not pursued as part of a overall left wing agenda along you know a, a, along with single payer health care and revitalized labor unions. Uh, it's right. pursued as we are. Fun- 
fighting for gay marriage. That's the issue. And then all those other groups, uh, they, they eventually get on board and, and it sort of like uh, gets passed. But as opposed to the on the right, that sort of, hey, these are the conservative values. We are simultaneously fighting for small government and uh, against abortion and uh, X, Y, Z. Is that is that sort of the the argument? That's exactly right. Ah. And then and then the other thing, you know, that I think is different about the left is that a lot of left wing actives. And again, there's a long history of, of this being true, has been somewhat ambivalent about whether elections and electoral politics are the best way to to further their goals, and if so, w- whether they should work within the Democratic Party or not. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 some people on the left aren't really sure if the Democrats are their friend or their enemy, um, and whether getting involved via the institutional Democratic Party is the best path to achieving their goal or whether they should do direct protest, whether they should, you know, um, uh, go through the media, whether they should sort of pursue other ways of of trying to realize those uh, those goals. Whereas on the right, I think there's been much more of a priority on party politics and winning elections as the avenue for advancing conservatism. And, uh, you know, it may be that that's starting to change. We certainly are seeing these days more clearly left-wing activism within the Democratic Party, with Democratic socialists, with people getting involved in the party at the local level, running for office as Democrats. And, you know, maybe that will change. But historically, there's been much less of that than there's been on the right. And it's been pointed out that in the last Democratic wave, you know, when the Republicans had their enormous wave in 2010, that was a Tea Party wave. Uh, But the 2018 uh, Democratic wave was not ideologically left-wing. There were many Many, many moderates elected as well, even as there were also the uh, the AOCs of the world were also elected. Exactly. And, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has gotten all this attention um, and she is a very interesting phenomenon. But one thing she is not is representative of the typical freshman Democrat elected to Congress. Mm. You know, she's a, a different kind of politician. And many of these, um, you know, newly elected Democrats did not run on a platform of trying to purify the Democratic Party. Um, many of them represent seats that are uh, that either went for Donald Trump or or almost went for Donald Trump. They don't necessarily have any political interest in their own perception of of starting a big ideological uh, uh, fight or, or staking themselves out on the left wing of the party. And so we need to remember that there are a whole bunch of people who um, who are, are maybe less newsworthy, uh, not less interesting to the media or to liberal <laughs> activists, but right. they're also there and they're also important. And typically they have been the base of the Democratic Party. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Dave Hopkins. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. 
Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. You know, I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I'm on an ongoing mission to lead a healthier lifestyle. That means getting out more, hitting the gym more, but it also involves making good choices about things we don't always think about, like where you get your groceries. Being mindful of the quality of goods you bring into your home can be a game changer, and that is the number one reason I am all about Thrive Market. Thrive Market has been my household's ultimate destination for all of our grocery and household essentials for years. We were using them before they ever started advertising on this show. The convenience of ordering online and having everything swiftly delivered to my doorstep is an enormous time saver. But you know what really sets Thrive Market apart? It's their commitment to offering brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. I can restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories, allowing me to tailor my shopping experience to my lifestyle preferences, of which I have many. For instance, I try to avoid sugar and my girlfriend eats gluten-free and Thrive Market makes it so easy to curate our shopping list with just a few clicks to make sure all our food meets those criteria. As a Thrive Market member, I consistently save money on every grocery order. On average, it's about a 30% discount every time. Another way I like to save some cash is by checking out their deals page, which changes daily and where they always feature some of my favorite brands. In my last order, I saved a bunch of money reordering a bunch of boxes of Bonza Pasta, which is one of our favorite gluten-free pasta brands. By joining Thrive Market, you're not only improving your own well-being, you're also contributing to a family in need through their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. Thrive Market is at the intersection of convenience, quality, and social responsibility, making it an essential part of my journey towards a healthier lifestyle. So. If after all that, you want to join in on the savings with Thrive Market and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift, go to thrivemarket.com slash factually for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That is T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash factually, thrivemarket.com slash factually. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. 
Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So, Dave, one question I have is when we're living in such a, an era of intense partisanship, when when people within these parties tend to see the facts on the ground through a partisan lens, do you encounter resistance to this message when, you know, you're simply sort of trying to describe, hey, here's how these groups are organized? Is it difficult for people to see through the the lens that they're viewing their own or the other party with and and sort of follow your argument? Um, not generally, but there has been a little bit of that. Um, you know, I remember, uh, presenting some of our work at a conference back when we were just starting and having people in the audience really dispute the, um, the, uh, deference we were given to the sincerity of Republicans, um, which, uh, you know, at an academic conference, you're, you're probably going to get more of that than people saying we're going too easy on the Democrats, though, even uh, liberals uh, and people who are on the left will sometimes say, well, you you're mischaracterizing my party as simply uh, the handmaiden of various, you know, uh, group interests. What we, we don't have principles, we don't have values, too. So, yeah, um, you know, anytime you write about parties or say anything about parties these days, people uh, people have such strong opinions um, about parties about each of the two parties um and so you know uh you will get people who uh who will have their own perspective not sufficiently deferred to by by your work but in general again we're not trying to make a value judgment um about either of the parties um we're not trying to say one's better than the other or that one is the way that party should be and the other there's a way the party shouldn't be. We're really trying to just describe what we see. And we do believe there are implications uh, for people who are partisans on both sides. And we believe that they will, um, you know, they will find our work relevant. Um, But we also think that, you know, in the long run, if if you don't understand the reality, that's not really going to be in your interest. Mm. And um, under- I agree. Find, finding some way to understand the other side, even if you don't agree with them, um, is only going to benefit you in the long run. It's going to make you sharper about how politics actually operates. And if you have political... Um, you know, here's one example is people on the left who are trying to make the Democratic Party an ideological party. Um, they, they aren't really served by dismissing our argument. They're served by understanding, you know, that they're taking on a very ambitious project um, and that they're trying to remake the Democratic Party into something different from what it uh, has been. And that's not going to be easy. And that's not something that would change even if you were to elect Bernie Sanders or or, or some other um, liberal uh, hero president or anything like that, the party is still going to be um, largely what it was before unless it's really revolutionized top to bottom. And we think, you know, better to grapple with that reality, even if it's um, inconvenient, than to um, <laughs> pretend that that it's going to be an easy task to change how the party is. That could basically be my motto. Grapple with the inconvenient reality is, <laughs> is absolutely what I'm all about. Uh, yeah. And well, we, you know, one, one of the benefits of being an academic is, is stepping back from some of these arguments, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and trying to sort of, uh, we, we obviously want people to be informed citizens and we want the people to participate in politics on behalf of what they uh, believe, but we don't have any, 
particular personal dog in, in some of these other fights we're, we're content to, to watch from the sidelines. So we've talked about how over the past you know 70 years or so, the parties have become much more ideologically sorted, that those conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans started to sort of fall away and, and sort into the two different parties. And we've had increased, increased, increased partisanship over the past few years. You know, the I know the numbers of people in each party who say that they're frightened or disgusted by the other party, by members of the other party, or who say they would be worried if their if their child got married to a member of the other party. Those sorts of numbers have gone up, um, and we've you know we've just seen partisanship rise on all fronts. Is that an aberration? Is that historically, or was the period in you know post World War II when you had uh, relative cooperation between the two parties? Was that the aberration in your view? Which are we in are we in the unusual times now or is this normal and 1950 was weird it's a great question i think in terms of just the strength of partisanship and party loyalty um there are certainly previous periods in american history where we we saw that um most of the era between the end of the Civil War and um, the early first few decades of the 20th century, um, American politics was pretty partisan. Um, and in fact, in those days, if you were an independent, people thought you were a wimp. You know, it's like, you should be a man and pick your side and be, you know, be strong and proud on, uh, that, on one side or the other. That also reminds and, me of how people used to feel, this is a, a I, I can't remember where I read this, but that um, uh, uh, secret balloting used to be considered wimpish as well, because anyone who has the strength to vote for someone should be proud to have their name on that ballot and have everyone know who they voted for. Uh, That's right. And we didn't we didn't have the secret ballot in this country until the end of the 19th century. So right. this was a, a period when, you know, your partisanship was literally quite public. Um, and and that was part of the culture then. So um, and if you look at party line voting in Congress during that era, it also was pretty, pretty high. Um, so in that way, we're not in a you know, in an unusual state. What's different, though, is that in those days, you know, the the government was much smaller, especially the federal government. The stakes of elections were were much less. And a lot of what partisanship was about in those days was simply about the exercise of power. So, you know, you'd have these party line votes in Congress, but it would be about should we hire the Democratic or the Republican printer to print the official government documents? You know, it was sort of a machine politics era, which didn't have nearly as much ideological content. Mm. And of course, the, you know, the government was so small that really the number of issues that you were fighting over was a lot lower. So what's new about our current era is it's an era, you know, after the creation of the modern state in an, in an era where, where America is a great power, where there are tremendously complex both foreign and domestic issues and policies um, at stake in, in, in public life. But we also have this increasingly strong partisanship. And, and that is something that's new. And we haven't really had experience uh, with that combination of factors before in American history. With that combination of ideology and partisanship, it's not, people aren't just being partisan in order to like be able to line their pockets with graft like in the 1960s century, they're doing it to right. advance an ideological agenda. Yeah. And and we've gotten to the point where there's virtually no it major issue that's not a party issue. You know, we we used to mm. have issues that cut across party lines um, and that where you would see bipartisan coalitions form uh, on one issue. And then when another issue comes, you'd see a different coalition form. What's what's so unusual about this 
era is that virtually every issue um, now separates one party from the other, um, no matter what the, the actual content of the policy is that's being debated. And so how does that happen? I've always been fascinated by that process. For instance, talking about climate change, issue close to my heart, uh, happen to agree with the vast majority of climate scientists on this matter. That's just me. Uh, but, you know, it's been much commented on that in the late 80s, this was a bipartisan issue when it first came up that uh, George H.W. Bush uh, was uh, very, you know, very concerned uh, about the version of that issue that was raised at the time. And even George W. Bush, despite his actions later, you know, pulling out the Kyoto Protocol and et cetera, uh, also gave at least lip service in that campaign, in his first campaign, to uh, the problem of climate change more broadly. Um, and But then what's happened since then is that's become a starkly, starkly partisan issue. Uh, with uh, uh, which is unfortunate, I think, because you know when we're talking about, we would hope that matters of science wouldn't become partisan. How did that? How does that happen? Well, one of the reasons why it happens is that um, you know when issues become more prominent, uh, when they get more attention, when um, activists in the parties sort of notice them more, um, sometimes that's the worst thing. From from the point of view of actually trying to get something accomplished, because it it puts the stakes of the fight as being so high, it's this partisan fight all of a sudden. Whereas issues that sort of can fly under the radar a little bit and that nobody sees as uh, definitional to mm. either side or either party, there's more room for uh, bipartisan agreements to to come about. So for a long time, climate change was just not an issue that got a whole lot of attention um, in the popular media, uh, among political activists, among rank and file voters. And so people didn't really care what the parties did. And so the parties could, you know, they could come to agreements or they could take positions that were at, at odds with uh, the base of their party and, and get away with it. But as it's become a, a, a much more um, prominent uh, divide, then all of a sudden, if you, you know, if you buck the party, you look like you're not a loyal partisan. Um, and so the, the, um, you know, activists often talk about awareness and how important it is to raise awareness. And of course, there's a lot of good reason why that that's true. But sometimes awareness can be the enemy um, as well as the friend of um, of actually making policy. That's really fascinating. Uh, and it does strike me that there have been one or two cases of bipartisan, you know, uh, issues being pushed through in the recent Congress. I mean, you know, often you'll see it with a large, you know, something that, that uh, large companies in America want, telecommunications companies, for instance, are often able to to, to get their way, uh, but also uh, in the last year, uh, a large criminal justice reform bill was passed, which you know my my uh, folks I know who work in that field uh, think that that bill was somewhat of a mi- mixed blessing. But it was a very large. Uh, I was it the First Step Act, I believe, uh, was mm-hmm. a very large criminal justice reform bill uh, that it was somewhat surprising to me that it passed, but also that it didn't get more coverage. And maybe what you're saying is the fact that it is not a very high-profile issue is what enabled progress to be made on it. Well, imagine in a world where um, 
people on Fox News and conservative talk show hosts and people like that started arguing that anybody who worked with the Democrats on criminal justice was a sellout to conservatism. Mm -hmm. And what if a bunch of liberal activists um, were, you know, or, um, uh, you know, civil rights people or whatever on on the Democratic side said any Democrat who works with Donald Trump on this issue is selling out. Um, Then we would probably see um, a big partisan uh, polarization, and we'd see probably nothing happening. Um, the 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 fact that uh, it just wasn't an issue that got a whole lot of partisans riled up um, in the media or in the in the activist world um, almost certainly helped progress from being to be made sort of you know behind the scenes and under the table, and then all of a sudden you wind up with a bill that has bipartisan support. And one thing that you know is important to remember is that's still how a lot of policy gets made. I mean, a lot of policy obviously doesn't get made. We have a lot of gridlock in the system. But when we when we don't have gridlock, when we have um, actual uh, legislative productivity, it's still the case that it often happens because there's some bipartisan cooperation that comes together and that members of both parties can sign on. Mm. Um, and we're in an era right now where both parties are sort of... Um, pursuing this model of just get a majority and just sort of roll over the minority and pass what you want. Um, but that often fails. Yeah. Um, and you often end up with nothing. And um, <laughs> it's still the case that our constitutional system continues, even despite our objections on both the left and right, continues uh, to really... Um, incentivize bipartisan cooperation as as the way to actually um, overcome the various veto points and, and gridlock in the system. But it's so fascinating, though, that the 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 partisan identification and the media attention sometimes seems like it can almost override the ideology. You're talking about how ideology is so important to the Republican Party. But if you look at healthcare, for instance, if you look at what happened to uh, the what became the program that became known as Obamacare, that was originally a uh, and, you know, I'm not Someone is going to go to bat for that particular bill as a fantastic solution to healthcare, uh, but you know that became that that began as a the Democrats trying to co-opt a Republican plan that Mitt Romney had championed in Massachusetts. That uh, if you look at it through a different lens, it looks like it fits very well with Republican ideology or with conservative ideology because it's a uh, it it is basically it works with the existing for-profit insurance companies. It's very business focused. And there's an sort of individual liberty, not liberty, but individual responsibility element to it where it says, hey, you shouldn't pass this cost on to everybody else and go to the emergency room and and have a very high cost. You should be required to buy insurance uh, in order to, you know, uh, fend for yourself, basically. Um, I I believe that's sort of the the conditions under which, you know, that's why it was uh, uh, passed by Republicans in Massachusetts. But then once it became a Democratic priority, that media machine that you're talking about sort of whipped into. Uh, into high gear and it became uh, something that a Republican couldn't possibly be for. I think I find that very interesting. Yeah. And we talk a fair amount about the Affordable Care Act in the book because we think it, it really is a is a is a great example of so much of what we you know, we want to say about the parties. And and one point of it is that it shows that, um, again, something very distinctive about the United States, that the the general suspicion of government 
and suspicion of bureaucracy and aversion to taxes and aversion to um, especially federal level power that is such a, a strong part of American political culture distinctively really shapes so much of our policies mm. um, that we live with, you know, up all the way up from the beginning of, of the country up to the present day. And, um, you know, a, a solution that other countries have adopted for healthcare is, well, just create a single payer government you know, plan. Um, but the American uh, solution is this very different solution. It's this solution that really tries to limit the role of direct government provision, that uses the private sector to deliver a lot of healthcare services, that uses market competition, that uses um, federalism with a lot of healthcare being administered at the state and local level rather than through the federal government directly. Um, and uh, this is all uh, stuff that, that, you know, Democrats have, have, uh, have adopted. You know, it, it, it's um, it, it's true that even the Democrats uh, feel the need to um, you, you know to sort of uh, uh, accommodate the aversion to federal power and government uh, a power that uh, that Republicans you know so often voice in our politics, and that really uh, shapes the way in which our government operates in so many different. Uh, policy areas. And um, the other thing that's funny about the Affordable Care Act is it's another great example of the difference between policy specifics and generalities, because when you looked at the polls of what people thought about the ACA, um, after about the summer of 2009, there were somewhat more people who were against it than were for it. And a lot of the people who were against it, they were were against it because it was too much government. It was, um, you know, it, it was an infringement on liberty and all these other sort of general philosophical and ideological differences. But if you ask people about the specific provisions in the AA, well, should we have Medicaid expansion? Should we have subsidies for people to buy insurance? Should we tell insurance companies they can't uh, deny people coverage for pre-existing conditions? Almost all of the specific provisions of the ACA were very popular. Right. And the the battle really was between the Democrats trying to talk about, here are the specific things this bill will do, and here's how it'll help you. And the Republicans saying, this bill is an assault on liberty and freedom, and it's un-American, and it's unconstitutional. It's that same pattern you were talking about where they, yeah, people like the proposal, but then they their identity or their, their sort of overall ideology is against it. That's exactly right. But the thing is, the trap that Democrats often fall into is they assume in what really matters is the specifics. And they look at those polls and they say, well, that's really what matters. Look, we have these provisions that get 65%, 70% approval. And they forget how easily the right can mobilize the larger, more symbolic, more philosophical um, aspects of American polit- political culture in, in, in order to engender opposition. Um, and I think the, the strength and the, the depth of the opposition to the ACA, I think, took almost everyone in the Democratic Party by complete surprise. They really thought this was something that was popular, it was going to help them, people were going to like it, and they couldn't believe that, you know, it was going to cost them the House and, and, uh, mm. and, and all the rest. But, you know, that, you know, that is also a big major part of American public opinion is that that much broader symbolic um, uh, uh, allegiance to uh, to conservative values and principles. And that's no less valid than the specific support mm. for left of center policies that we also tend to see. 
How does media differ between the two parties, both in the specific segments of media that we associate with them, you know, your Fox News and your MSNBCs, but also the sort of broader media ecosystem? Is it the case that mainstream media is liberal? <laughs> well, it's the case that most members of the mainstream media are liberal. I think mm. the, the evidence is very clear on that. Most people who work as reporters um, or commentators for mainstream uh, organizations tend to be personally left of center. And I think there are some times when you can see elements of um, of of that in in their product, though they certainly are not. They don't see themselves as openly advocating a particular ideological point of view, or, or or even that that would be proper for them to do. There are norms, there are professional norms of journalism that suggest that you you don't do that. You pursue you know the idea of an uh, uh, neutral or objective um, newspaper story or, or television story or or whatever, um, but. We think the media in general is this uh, really outstanding example of the asymmetry of the parties because there really isn't a, an openly left-wing media universe the way that there's an openly right-wing mm. media universe. And people often equate Fox News and MSNBC, but they're really very different. Fox mm. News has so? a tremendous amount of influence within the Republican Party, and uh, MSNBC just doesn't doesn't play that same role. And right, there's the no other, there's no politicians who are terrified of Chris Hayes. Yeah, well, and Chris, right, exactly. And Chris Hayes isn't using his platform to attack, you know, politicians for being, <laughs> you know, for being uh, uh, not true to their ideology. Right. The other thing, of course, is that the conservative media tells its own audience not to trust anybody but the conservative media. That is, in, in fact... Outside of conservatism itself, that is the the primary message of the conservative media that's repeated constantly. Mm. And that has had an effect. If you look at polls, uh, Republicans trust the conservative media and they do not trust anybody else. And that's not the same for Democrats. Democrats aren't getting the message, number one, that they shouldn't treat they shouldn't trust the ma mainstream media. MSNBC is not telling them don't trust NBC. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for obvious reasons, but they're just not getting it. They're saying don't, they'll, they'll pick on Fox. They'll say, oh, Fox is crazy, but they won't say, oh, don't read the New York Times. Don't listen to NPR. Don't listen to CNN. Only listen to openly uh, liberal uh, sources. And so for for Democrats, yeah, there are plenty of Democrats that watch MSNBC, but they don't only trust MSNBC. They 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 watch other and read other mainstream outlets too, and they they report trusting uh, those mainstream outlets uh, much more. It's only Fox they don't trust. So there's just no symmetry uh, there at all, and really no real uh, 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 balance between the role that Fox plays, which is such a tremendously influential role in Republican politics and the role that any openly ideological media source plays in Democratic politics. You've also said that uh, Republican faith in uh, you know various institutions like large-scale American institutions has been on the wane over recent years. That makes me think of the uh, Republican complaints against higher education, for example, um, and the ways in which the education system itself has become politicized. Uh, how has that happened and to what ends? Well, academia, like the mainstream media, 
has for many, many years been viewed with a certain amount of suspicion from the right. Um, you know, that, that again, it's an institution that's dominated by uh, liberals and Democrats. It doesn't give a fair shake to conservative ideas or conservative beliefs or um, uh, even facts that are inconvenient for, uh, for left of center uh, people. And so uh, the attempt to build an alternative conservative media universe has a parallel in the building of the alternative uh, universe of conservative expertise and policymaking. And we see that in the think tank world, uh, especially, mm. that the um, array of think tanks, um, the sort of flagship being the Heritage Foundation, but um, but uh, the American Enterprise Institute uh, is another good example. There are many others, even at the state level, a lot of individual states, there are state level think tanks in capital cities all around the country that are sort of mini versions of Heritage and AEI. And um, this was a, a very clear um initiative to counterbalance what was generally perceived as the liberal bias of traditional academia, of universities. And um, again, it's been quite successful. And it doesn't have the same counterpart exactly on the left. Yes, there are left of center think tanks, but there are not as many of them. They're not quite as important. And they don't fill the same hole on the left because the left also trusts traditional um, academic sources and experts as well. So the um, you know the, the the long-term project of building explicitly conservative institutions that are in control of information and expertise to balance out what we're seeing as inherently hostile mainstream institutions, both in the uh, media world, but also in the educational system, um, has been, a, again, a multi-decade project on the right. And we can see the, you know, the fruits of it um, in the politics of, of the current moment. It sometimes seems to me that when I, you know, watch conservative, uh, you know, avowedly conservative pundits like, say, you know, your Hannity's and your Carlson's uh, speak, that there's a degree to which they try to almost increase the degree to which we we look at these institutions through a polarized lens, that uh, they, they themselves seem to sort even previously nonpartisan uh, institutions like academia or, you know, the news media into, well, this is a liberal institution or a conservative institution. And it seems to me that people on the left do that, le or sorry, people in the Democratic Party, uh, since we're trying to divide those two, do that less. Mm -hmm. Is that the is that the case? And if so, uh, why why that uh, pressure? Well, again, part of it is reality. I mean, it is true that most academics are on the left mm -hmm. uh, compared to the right, and there are cases where I think you can you can. Um, suggest with with fair amount of credibility that show that um, the right doesn't always get a fair hearing um, in academia um, the way the left does, and so there is a there is a germ of of truth in a lot of this, um, and um, I think uh, the the figures that you 
site are are people who who are very familiar with that. That's that's been part of conservative um, culture and conservative lore going a long way back, going back to William F. Buckley and the uh, first generation of conservative movement. Um, you know, Buckley famously wrote God and Man at Yale, which is a which is a book that's all about the the liberal capture of academia, and um, that's that's nothing new. Um, what is new, of course, is the ability of this modern mass market conservative uh, media universe to propagate the suspicion of, um, of, of academics and the educational system much more widely than mm. was true in the past. And so I think more and more regular people are being exposed to that message of, of suspicion and distrust uh, than, than used to be. And in our current moment, I think it's compounded by the sort of generation gap that has emerged in our politics, um, which has not always been there, but is there today where there's, um, you know, the, the, the mass base of the Republican Party is, is older than the mass base of the Democratic Party. And so um, it's not just professors, but college students that are now seen as sort of the enemy of conservatism. Right. Um, more than was true uh, in the past. And so if you watch Tucker Carlson, of course, that's a major uh, part of his, um, you know, theme of, of his programming is the hostility of campuses in general to conservative ideas and conservative personalities and the, you know, crazy left-wing uh, uh, activities that are going on at college campuses today. And uh, uh, again, that has very deep roots, but I think what's different about today is that a lot more people are being exposed to that message and seem to be uh, believing that message. The other thing that's changed has been that it used to be that conservatives um, and Republicans were better educated at the mass level than Democrats were. Mm. Um, that, in fact, you know, having a college degree um, helped, you know, predict, mostly would predict that you would be a Republican rather than a Democrat. Huh. And so the Republican Party, you know, traditionally had a very, had a well-educated base, at least a, a big chunk of the base was, was well-educated and had a lot invested in state university systems, in academia in general, even if they did have, you know, complaints about the liberalism of professors, there still was this idea that, you know, these were people who were college graduates and that they really um, valued college colleges as institutions. Um, but with the change that we're starting to see now, the evolution of the mass base of the party now, it's much less true um, that at least, especially if you look at whites, um, you know, in the first time in 2016, whites with college degrees were more likely than whites without college degrees uh, to vote uh, to vote for for Democrats, and uh, that seems to be the way we're, we've been headed, even before Trump. Trump sort of accelerates that divide, but the divide was 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 in the works before Trump came along, and um, that may suggest that in the future. Um, for support for higher education, support for student programs, things like that may just be more partisan of an issue that Republicans will not see their own constituents as clamoring for that, but rather as uh, as suspicious of of the university system and wow. uh, and higher education in general. And uh, and that may uh, that may really change the politics, especially at the state level, where, you know, state universities are so important uh, parts of state governments right. um, and where state legislatures 
legislatures um, and governors have varying degrees of, of power over them, certainly over their budgets. Um, we may see that happen more. It happens has already happened to some extent in places like Wisconsin. I think we may see that more in the future, that higher education becomes yet another issue where there's uh, more polarization by party than there used to be in the past. And that's a shame because uh, I think that if we, you know, if folks step outside of their partisan shells for a second, we can agree that education writ large is something that we all have an interest in and that, that I would hate to be divisive along partisan grounds. But the the reason I love talking to you is because, you know, we're, we're day, day by day sort of stuck in this partisan morass. You know, when we read the news, when we follow, you know, comments on social media, on, on, on all of our media outlets. Um, and it's wonderful talking to you because you're actually studying partisanship and the parties in a dispassionate way uh, and able to give us, you know, the historical context, the sociological context for what we're seeing in a way that, you know, helps me understand them better. Uh, so my last question is, since we've been talking about how the parties have changed over time historically, and since it seems like nobody is happy right now with where we're currently at. Uh, how do you see things perhaps changing in the future? Do you see th- where we're at as an equilibrium at this, this moment of hyperpartisanship, where we're going to be at it for a while? Or, or is this an unstable moment that's going to become something else? And do you have any hint of, of what that might be? It's a great question. Um, gosh, <laughs> I, I wish a, I could a, see I the future uh, <laughs> yeah. with a lot of confidence. I'd be I'd be in great shape. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really tough to uh, to see these things uh, before they happen. I do think that we're in a we're in an era that is to some extent self reinforcing, and so mm. the. Um, the the if you have to bet if you're sort of forced to bet you 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 sort of bet on things not changing too much because polarization seems to beget polarization as one party becomes more aggressive the other party responds and because the two parties are so evenly matched today um, they both you know we have a lot of very close elections party control of Congress goes back and forth neither party is is doing badly enough that they feel like they really need to tear tear it at down and and start again or really rethink their approach. Um, they're always one one small, even if they're out of power, they're always one small switch in the vote away from getting right back in. Mm. So there are a lot of reasons to believe we are, you know, in somewhat of a of a stable, um, you know, a stable pattern. What I would say we can take from history, though, is that things do have a way of changing, um, often in ways that are um, difficult to anticipate. Um, obviously, the Great Depression is an example of, of something that fundamentally changed party politics in the U.S. Uh, the Civil War obviously did. Um, we've had lots of changes, just you know, smaller changes in terms of social movements or in terms of changes in, um, you know, in, in um, technology or in uh, trade or in economics that have reshaped our parties as we've gone along. And so, you know, we know we don't necessarily know how to predict those things or see them coming before they happen, but we do know that uh, there is an element of change and evolution as well as elements of stability in our 
politics, and there's no reason not to think that there's more change around the corner. It's just a question of exactly what it would look like. At the very least, we can perhaps take a little solace in the fact that the way things are aren't the way things have to be, that change is possible, it has happened, and it might happen again. That's right. And another thing that I think... um, you know, not just us, but lots of political scientists will say, um, political scientists tend to be more positive about parties than everybody else. Hmm. Everybody likes to dump on parties all the time and complain about parties and partisanship is sort of an epithet in American politics. George Washington hated the parties. That's right. Um, You know, there's there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, who have that view. Political scientists tend to be more positive about parties just because we see the necessity of parties, Mm. that parties play a role um, that is so central to the whole concept of representative democracy and going after the parties and weakening the parties and, and, and trying to tear down the parties doesn't necessarily lead us to a better politics either. And so I think if there's a solution, the solution will often come from the parties. And so what I would say is if people want politics to change, if they don't like how things are now, um, what, what I and what most politics uh, uh, experts, political scientists would argue is get involved in the parties, you know, change the parties from the inside. Yeah. Um, that's how that's how they can change. You know, the parties are in their own way fairly porous. You know, they're not walled off from the average person. You could go to a local uh, right. party meeting uh, in your neighborhood and within uh, a year you might be precinct captain or you might be even running for local office or something like that. There are lots of opportunities for people to yes. get involved. And we've seen change happen, you know, within the parties just precisely uh, through that mechanism. And so we're, uh, you know, Matt and I are, are like, as I said, most of our colleagues, we're not anti-parties. Um, and we don't think that weakening the parties necessarily solves the problems that people see in, in politics and sometimes makes those problems actually worse. We think that, uh, you know, the parties just need to be straightened out in a way. They need to be, um, they, they need to be pushed in a more productive, positive direction direction, rather than being uh, sort of the opposition. Um, And uh, that's really what what we believe after after a whole big project of looking at the parties and looking at the history of the politi- parties, I think that's what we what we still believe more than ever. I mean, that's incredible. If after looking at the structure of American political parties for what's got to be your entire career, or at least a good chunk of years, you have reason for optimism, that makes me feel a lot better because uh, <laughs> I would have expected you to be the most pessimistic person on the planet. And so, yeah, that's a wonderful message. Get out there, go to your local uh, your your local party election that you think is too small to even bother with and maybe you can make a difference there. I uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about this, Dave. Well, I really appreciate you having me, Adam. It's really, really been fun. What's the name of the book one more time for our audience? The name of the book one more time is Asymmetric Politics, Ideological Republicans and Group Interest Democrats. Go look it up at your local bookstore or library. Thank you once again, Dave, for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Adam. Appreciate it. Well, thank you once again to Dave Hopkins for coming on the show, and thank you folks so much for listening. My name is Adam Conover. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. I don't care where you get it. Just leave us a rating. It would help us out a lot. I'd like to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our superstar researcher, Sam Roudman, and party god, Andrew W.K., for our theme song. That is it for this week's Factually. See you next time. That was a HeadGum Podcast.